So <clears throat> if you go off to medical school and go through that trajectory on into residency, at some point you'll probably have a kind of you know, low-key or fun discussion about which subspecialty you should choose, which subspecialty is most important. And what you're really saying if you're in the medical subspecialties is which organ system is most important, which part of the body. So, you know, the cardiologists, the, those who are going into cardiology fellowship or whatnot, they are going to say, hey, without the heart uh, functioning well and pumping blood to the rest of the body, it's a no-go. And the neurologists are going to say, well, you can supply a bunch of blood to the brain, but if you have an encephalopathy or, you know, your brain is disordered in some way, then you're not going to be yourself. You're not going to be the person that you used to be. And this can go on and on. You know, the nephrologists are going to say without the kidneys, uh, none of those organs are going to work because their electrolytes aren't going to be right, et cetera, et cetera. You get the picture. And today we have, I think, a similar thing to that that was going on in the church in Corinth. If you look through, if you've been following along as we preach through the book of 1 Corinthians, you find that there were these socioeconomic and ethnic divisions in the church that also spilled over into the ideas about spiritual gifts. And so you have some really spiritual people and their gifts are more important and they are willing to discount or put aside other people whose gifts either weren't as noticeable or that they saw as less important. And Paul is using a metaphor of the body to communicate this. So it's exactly like the discussion among medical students and residents, like which organ is most important. Now the problem with that line of thinking, and I actually see it in medical practice a lot these days, and many of you have experienced this, you get shipped around to various subspecialists who have tunnel vision on their organ and nobody's asking the question, who is this person? Who's, who's this whole entity? Um, you know, just show me the kidneys. Um, but people are whole people. And that's what Paul is going to get to today. And this is kind of the summary of the whole thing is that the Holy Spirit makes the church one body of Christ a unified, functioning body of Christ to be Christ's presence in this place at this time, emphasizing the unity aspect. But the Holy Spirit does that by giving the body, the various organ systems and parts, a great diversity of giftings. So there's unity. That means everybody's important. And then there's diversity. That means everybody's special and to be honored. And really, we could close up and go home, but I'm going to try to demonstrate that to you from the text. But that, that really is the main message. So what we're going to do today is I'm not going to read. I think this is a long text in 1 Corinthians 12, and I'll lose you. I'm going to read the text as they support the points. And we have three points in this. One is that the Holy Spirit gives the church unity as the body of Christ. Number two, the Holy Spirit gives a variety of gifts for the common good. And number three is that each part of the body is to value the other parts with sympathy and honor. There's three points. Unity, diversity, and then sympathy and honor all given by the Holy Spirit. 
You're going to have to use your worship guide today because I, I tricked all the AV people by jumping around. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit giving us unity as the body of Christ. Look at verses 1 through 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts. And this is a marker, if you remember in 1 Corinthians, that now concerning indicates that he's replying to a question that they sent him by written letter. So they've asked him a question about the functioning of spiritual gifts. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. And the idea here is that Corinth had lots and lots of pagan idolatries. You could go to all different kinds of temples. And so all these people were scattered out with their many favorite gods. There is no unifying factor. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, this text has often been a proof text in spiritual warfare discussions, in discussions about demonization and exorcism, and it may have an application there, but clearly in this context, the point of this text is this. Hey, Corinthians, you're all one body. No matter where you come from, no matter what your gifts are, there's a unity that you have, and that unity is expressed because it's the Holy Spirit who has given you, if you're a member of the body, the ability to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's the point. And if you want that to be confirmed, let's look look down at verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one, and now he's talking about the human body, just as the body is one and has many members or parts or organs, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now he takes that metaphor of the human body and he says this is Christ's body here with all of its various members. For in one spirit, we're back to the Holy Spirit again, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks. You see, this is the obliteration of ethnic hatred and ethnic divisions. Slaves or free, the obliterating of socioeconomic distinctions. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Now all of you, uh, those of you who are new to all this, this is kind of a little code language, but I have to use it sometimes and you'll catch on. Those of you who have a reformed view versus an Arminian view of how people get saved, uh, you're clapping at this. Yay! Because what he's saying is, God took dead sinners... From every walk of life, religious Jews, pagan Greeks, rich and poor, all kinds of people, but they all had this in common. They were dead in their trespasses and sins, but because of his great love for them, God, who is rich in mercy, made them alive together in Christ. By grace, they were saved. It was the Holy Spirit that gave anybody who's here today who believes It wasn't because you were smarter than somebody else or more moral than somebody else. It's because the Holy Spirit came and gave you a new heart and a new mind 
so that you could embrace Christ as Savior, crucified and raised, and confess Him as Lord. That's what this text is about. And the Holy Spirit, then, is the fundamental personal agent of unity. The Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, fully God, with personality, worked in your heart if you're confessing Jesus is Lord truly to give you that confession. And that means that all of us, no matter what your political preferences are or your socioeconomic status or anything else, we are all made one body by one spirit. Now, those of us who are Western rationalists, and that would include, I have to look around, pretty much everybody in the room, are not really inclined to think that what we see physically and what we do has a real, true spiritual backdrop. Now, everybody who believes the Bible says they believe in a spirit world, but the problem is if you grew up just doing chemistry and physics and being a Western rationalist, you, you assent to that, but it's not really down in your bones. But if you grew up in other parts of the world, it's really down in your bones. When something happens physically in front of you, the first question you ask is, what happened in the unseen spiritual world behind this? So I'm just going to tell you a little story to warm you up from your Western rationalism, okay? In, the, in Israel, uh, there was a northern kingdom. Israel had divided. There's a northern kingdom, usually called Israel. The southern kingdom was called uh, Judah. And Jehoshaphat at this time happened to be king in Judah. Now, Jehoshaphat was really successful. He was a good king. He followed Asa. He was doing a great job. So everybody liked him. Jehoshaphat went up to Israel to visit King Ahab. King Ahab, not so great. Actually, pretty bad king up there. And Jehoshaphat and Ahab were sitting on their thrones in the northern kingdom in Samaria, Israel, and they were chit-chatting with their robes on. And Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, Hey, Jehoshaphat, how about you bring all your army guys up? They had just counted them, some 500 and some 1,000. You bring all your army guys up, and I'll bring mine, and we'll go attack the Arameans at Ramoth-Gilead, and we'll win a great victory, and you know, probably we'll share the plunder or whatever. And Jehoshaphat said, well, my men are as your men. We're, we're going to be one team. But first, let's inquire the Lord. Do you, got, do you have any prophets around here? And Ahab says, yeah, I got a bunch of prophets. So they called all the prophets, 400 prophets. And they said, should we go up and attack Ramoth Gilead? And all the prophets with one voice, all the prophets in the north, all the, the so-called prophets of Ahab, said, yes, you should go up and attack Ramoth Gilead. The Lord's going to give you the victory. And one guy named Zedekiah even made himself a set of horns and danced around and said, in this way, you're going to gore the Arameans at Ramoth Gilead. And I'm not really sure why from the text, but Jehoshaphat said, huh, you got any other prophets around here? <laughs> and Ahab said, yeah, there's one more prophet that we have like this, but he never really has much good to say to me. And, and Jehoshaphat said, well, let's call him. And so they go and they send for a prophet named Micaiah. And Micaiah comes and he doesn't go along with the crowd. He says, uh, you want to know if you should go up and attack Ramoth Gilead? I saw uh, Israel scattered like sheep on the hills. And Ahab said, see, I told you. And, and Micaiah then opens up actually what he has seen. 
And Micaiah had had a vision of what in the Bible is normally called the divine council. He said, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven were gathered before him. Okay, Are these angelic beings? Are they other kinds of spirits? It looks like in the divine council, even Satan can show up there sometimes in the book of Job. So there's all these spiritual beings. And then God says... Hey, this is, a, this is like a management meeting, okay? God says, who is going to go out and entice Ahab to go up to Ramoth Gilead to his death? So one spirit says one thing. Another spirit says another thing. Finally, one of the spirits says, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord seems to say, that sounds like a good idea. We're going to do that, and you're going to succeed. And so when you look at this, what you see is that there is a spiritual entity behind 400 men all confessing exactly the same thing. How did they all get this unity of mind and purpose? Well, there's a spiritual agency that that the Bible tells us that Micaiah saw that was directly behind all that. Now, that's a negative illustration, but what we're saying here is, do you and I really believe in the Holy Spirit? Is he a real person? Is he the third person of the Godhead? And do you confess that Jesus is Lord and were you brought into a body, baptized into a local body because of the work of the Spirit? Well, then if that's true, it implies that we have unity of confession. And what Paul's arguing is here is that unity of confession given by the Spirit should obliterate our socioeconomic and ethnic divisions and distinctions. It should, it, the consequence of that has to be unity of the body of Christ. So when we, when we think about, did I get you all to move towards animism a little bit? I don't really... I don't really want you to be an animist, but I would like you to have a biblical worldview that acknowledges the spirit world. And and when we begin to apply this, what we want to say is that if I'm educated and wealthy and whatever else, and somebody else is poor and uneducated and whatever else, I'm not bringing anything to the table over those other people in terms of our unity in the body of Christ, each of us was given the Spirit to confess Christ as Lord. And this is fundamental. This is absolutely fundamental to the doctrine of the church in the New Testament. And it all rests on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And then what you see in this is that it's not only your initiation by baptism into the church, but it's your ongoing life and drinking. He says, and this is amazing, Jews are Greek, slaves are free, in 13, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Where does our ongoing life as a church come from? Where does our ongoing unity come from? It's from drinking of the person and work of Christ through the Holy Spirit. How does that happen? By the means of grace. Scripture, prayer, fellowship, sacraments, preaching, worship, the things that we're doing here today. I'm drinking. I'm I'm a thirsty soul. I want more of Christ. Who's the agent of bringing more of Christ to my heart and life is the person of the Holy Spirit. 
And so we come again and again and again. Do we believe in the Holy Spirit? We say that in the, in the Apostles' Creed. And what I would love for you and for myself is to, to see, speak, I pray thee, gentle Jesus, to speak to us in fresh ways that soften our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And so you just want to ask, I want to ask myself, and you want to ask yourself the question, where am I drinking? Where am I drinking? What am I, what am I rooting around in to find satisfaction, life? Money, retirement account, better job, manipulating my children into behaving well, hunting, fishing, pornography, drunkenness, sexual immorality. You know, Jeremiah says, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Exactly here, drinking of the Spirit. And they've dug for themselves broken cisterns, cisterns that can't hold any living water. So this is just a call back to say, where am I drinking? Where am I finding life? And how's that life then expressed in unity of body? So that's the first point. The second point that we want to, to look at here is that the Holy Spirit gives a variety of gifts for the common good. So look at verse 4. He says, and the emphasis here is going to be on variety and commonality. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And I just want to pause there and say, if you're always looking for Trinitarian doctrinal formulations, here you have a, a critical one. This is why the, the church affirmed that there's one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because all these gifts have their source in the triune God. And he says the variety comes from the Spirit, varieties of service from the Lord Jesus Christ, varieties of activities, but it's God the Father who's empowering them all. And so you have a deep fundamental philosophical thing if you want to go there. The philosophers like to ask, is there one thing or are there many things? One or many? That's a famous old philosophical question, the one and the many. And what you find is that in, in Trinitarian philosophy and theology, yes, one, unity, monotheistic, the one God of the Bible, who exists in plurality, in variety, in three persons, distinct, all equal in power and glory. And they give rise then to unity of the body and plurality of variety of gifts. I mean, this whole thing can go as deep and long as you want it to go. But we're going to stop there. And, and say that that variety then expresses itself in a variety of gifts. Look at verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. 
Then if you look over, you see this listing that he gives and you have here the proof text that the list of gifts are not exhaustive. Look over at verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ, unity, and individually members of it, plurality and unity. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing. Oh, helping. He didn't put that in the first list. It was all the more dramatic gifts. Administrating. Now, God bless all you people who have the gift of administration. I'm really glad you're here. Not my gift or desire, but look, it's listed right here. Administration. And various kinds of tongues are all apostles, prophets, teachers, do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But eagerly desire the greater gifts, the gifts that, that benefit the body. So there's this big variety of gifts. Now, I'm not going to go into prophecy and tongues today. We've talked about that, revelatory gifts and our position on those things many times. Um, what I want to do, though, is to say in these lists, Peter boils them all down to word and deed, to speaking and acting. Speaking and acting. And, and that's, that's a fair summary, and I'll let you, you work on these lists. But the, the main thing that we're including today is the variety. And then the other thing that we want to emphasize, in this variety, there's equal inclusion and importance. Look at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And so in that text right there, you officially have a strong imperative to those of us or you who would denigrate your own gifts. I know someone whose gift, spiritual gift, is clearly the gift of helping and service. And that person struggles all the time that the gift isn't more visible. That person gets joy out of helping and serving, but it just doesn't seem to be as important as other more visible gifts. And quite frankly, that's just a frank sin. Okay? That's to be repented of as you would have repented of any other sin, a technicolor sin that you might have, to denigrate the gift that was given. And it also precludes jealousy. That, that includes jealousy, but it precludes looking down on other people or with a jaundiced eye at other people in their gifts, whether they're very visible or not very visible, whether they're in, in word or in deed. Now, why is that? Let's move on then to say that the purpose of the gifts is for the common good. This variety of gifts in verse 7, it says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. And then if you look down 
uh, to verse 11, it says, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The Spirit is a person with, with, with personality and choice, and he gives gifts according to his own will. So in a sense, if you have a gift that you denigrate or despise or you envy some other gift, you're really sort of slapping the Spirit in the face. And, that, and that's the implication of all this. So everything that we see here is about a variety of gifts. Now, uh, how, what does this look like in practice? Well, there was a fella in the um, 19th century named D.L. Moody, and D.L. Moody didn't have any education, but any higher education, but he founded three schools. Uh, Andrew went to, to Moody Bible Institute without any theological training. He didn't go to seminary or to a school of theology. He really shaped the second half of the 19th century in terms of theology. And without any radio, television, or internet, he, he reached 100 million people. How did D.L. Moody have this kind of impact and influence? Well, R.A. Torrey, his biographer, has done us a great favor by telling a story that I love to recount. Moody was preaching in Chicago at the YMCA on successive nights uh, in, in, over a longer period of time. And two ladies showed up at his meetings and they sat like right down in the front row. And one's name was Auntie Cook and the other's name was Mrs. Snow. These were free Methodist ladies who just showed up. And what happened is through his preaching, every time he was preaching, they were down in the front row praying. You could see they had their eyes closed, their mouth was moving, they're praying, praying, praying. So Moody observes this. And eventually he goes down after one of the sermons and greets these ladies and says, help me understand, tell me why you're here in, in the front row praying like this. And they said, we're really praying that you would be empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you're the preacher, you know, that's what you love to hear. <laughs> Obviously, these ladies recognize that there's some deficit or something that could be added to what's going on here, right? So they're praying, they're praying that he would be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he was a little bit, Moody was irritated with this. And he actually responded to them and said, well, why don't you pray for the people who aren't saved, you know, that, that God will give them life. And they ignored him and they just went right on praying. So finally, Moody sort of came around and he, he went down and he, he actually had a little prayer meeting with the ladies. He said, okay, why don't you pray that I'll be empowered by the Holy Spirit? And what, I won't tell you the whole story, but sometime later, Moody became very hungry for having his preaching uh, energized and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I think it was around 1870 that the Lord really anointed him in a special way, kind of halfway all, all the way through his ministry. And after that time, the results were absolutely astounding. He went to England, he went to other places, and scads and scads and scads of people came to saving faith in Christ through his meetings. So the question is, what happened there? If you just look at the history books and you don't have the biography by R.A. Torrey, it just looks like D.L. Moody's a big deal, right? He's the upfront face, he's the voice. But what you find is that there were two ladies who I think it sounds like had the gift of faith to be able to pray in a determined way for something to happen that actually came to pass that had an impact on the whole world. 
So you just have two little free Methodist ladies who change history by using their spiritual gifts. D.L. Moody has a school name for him, but they really were the instigators of the power behind it. So this is the kind of vision that we want to have for spiritual gifts. My ministry in the local church is about, not about my ego or my territory. And you know, this happens all the time. People get jealous over resources. Should you go to children's ministry, youth ministry, this, that other thing? Uh, I think I told you before, I had a patient of mine who had an absolute nervous breakdown who was in a church down in Columbia because somebody took away her supply closet. She had been a Sunday school teacher for 32 years. They took away her supply closet and she at, I had to start her on meds. There's a problem in her service, wasn't there? And, th- and that's not what spiritual gifts are about. They're, they're for the common good. And each gift is essential and necessary and it brings us to a place of unity to to accomplish the work of Christ in our place and our time. Now, I'm just going to be really brief because we're going to have to wrap up here, but let's just talk about the gifts of the Spirit. And this is what I want to say, and it might be contrary to what you've heard, and that's okay. We could have a talk about it another time. Uh, Gifts of the Holy Spirit are empowering for ministry, for the common good that can come in all different kinds of things. The, The list is not exhaustive. Bezalel and Aholiab that we heard about from Exodus, they had gifts of the Spirit for metalworking and for making the, the parts of the tabernacle. That's what they had. Now, is it a natural gift or something completely different? Well, it can be a natural gift if you're naturally gifted in some area. Then the Spirit can take that and empower it for kingdom purposes, for the glory of Christ in a Christ-centered ministry. Or sometimes you find that a person, let's say, for example, is a speaker all day long, they speak a lot, and and the the thing the Spirit really puts in their hearts and motivates as a gift might be a word deed. It might be something that's, that's different from their natural abilities that's motivated by the Spirit. So how do you figure this out? Well, the way you figure this out is you jump in and you start to serve and love people. And you, you keep an eye on yourself And when you're exhausted and you don't want to do it, like, man, this thing is really a grind to me. I just don't look forward to getting involved in this again. That likely is not your gift. But if you can go and run and do the thing that you're doing, and and it gives you joy and energy in the Holy Spirit, you you have basically joy in it. You have the joy of the Lord in in doing this function in serving other people for the common good, then that's more likely your spiritual gift. Now, sure, sometimes you get tired. So just as an example, there's somebody I know that was doing a ton of administration. This person was doing schedules and sending out emails and people were responding to those emails and then they would have to email people individually and there was just all kinds of planning and calendaring and all this stuff going on. And I, be- I was involved in this email thread and I began to feel really kind of sick and concerned about this other person. I was just like, this has got to be killing this person. This is like a, such a noble undertaking that they're doing. So finally, I found them here in the room one day, and I said, are you all right? Because that's a lot of emails. 
and a lot of calendars and a lot of details. And that person was happy as a pig in the mud. <laughs> they were. They were just like, man, this is what I do. It just rolls off of me like anything. I wear it like my skin. Give me some more stuff to administer, you know? And, and so to me, that, that was really like confirmation that, that this person has this gift and I don't need to feel guilty about sending things uh, their way to take care of. So what is your gift and how are you using it for the common good? What's your gift and how are you using it for the common good? And I want to put a plug in for small groups here. We had Serve Fest today and I hope you serve in an area that has a label so now you're on the welcome team or the coffee team or you're helping with music or whatever it is that you're doing, that's great. But using your gifts doesn't have to have a label. So you can be in a small group and when you hear that Sally's barn's broken down, you immediately say, I'm going to go help. You're using that gift of helps. When you hear that, that so-and-so is really discouraged and you invite them out for co coffee, you're going to give them a word of encouragement. You have a word there, and that happens in ways that nobody would, would ever see. But the, the whole question is, I want to ask this, really to ask you, what's your spiritual gifts, and how are you using them? And if you, if you don't know, what are you going to do about this whole section of the Bible? It's, it's in here. You can't run away from it. It's there. And it's an invitation really to joy. All right, the last thing, and now I'm going to cut this really short. Um, the, the main thing that we want to see here is that each party values and has honor and sympathy for the other parts. Uh, let's look at verse 21 and following. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And this is probably gets to the, the rub of what was happening in Corinth. Hey, I'm super spiritual. Who needs that administrator over there? You know, I've got the big deal. Because he's going to say in chapter 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, hey man, I speak in tongues. You know, but I don't have love. I don't have anything. Right? So that's what he's after. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body based on socioeconomic, ethnic terms, or spiritual gifts, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Honoring and valuing other people's spiritual gifts. So um, I just I did this at the early service. Let's see who's brave in here. How many of you have had gout in your big toe? I just want to get a show of hands. Okay, there's one, two, three. Okay, so John and Steve and Mackie and okay and Brian. All right, so you got four people you can talk to after the service about what gout is like. Because I'm going to tell you about it, but I don't think telling you about it is the same as having like a first-person experience of it. Okay, your body makes something called uric acid. So uric acid is floating around in our bodies as part of metabolism of food and stuff that you have. Well, so it's there, 
And you know that you collect fluid in your lower extremities while you stand up during the day. Those of you who are younger don't really recognize this as much yet because your veins are still intact, but eventually they'll fail and you'll collect more fluid in your feet, okay? <laughs> Those are backflow check valves and they don't last forever. Um, anyway, I digress. So there you are and you lie down in bed at night. And so when you lie down in bed at night, you begin to redistribute the fluid that you collected in your legs in the day by gravity. So let's say the concentration of uric acid in your feet when they're really full of fluid is this much. And what they need to do is to get down to this concentration in order to crystallize, like when you put too much sugar in sweet tea, in tea, it, it won't dissolve, it crystallizes out. Well, that's what uric acid can do. And so since your big toe is sticking up higher than the rest, it actually will drain out fluid first and the uric acid will crystallize. When you look at them under a microscope, uh, they look like pickup sticks. Anybody remember pickup sticks? A little like toothpicks. They look like shiny toothpicks and they deposit themselves in the joint space of your big toe. So what happens in the middle of the night is that your body goes, ah, there's foreign stuff in the big toe joint. Let's go get it. And so what, what it does then is that think of yourself as having both a sprained ankle and an infected cut at the same time. Like every inflammatory mediator that you can muster is sent down to the big toe to war on crystals in your big toe joint. So what happens then is it turns swollen, bright, red, hot, inflamed, and people will tell you when you're talking to people that they can't bear to have the, the weight of the sheet touch their big toe. That's how badly it hurts. And that's what a middle of the night gout attack is like. And you can ask our, our witnesses here later for how bad it is. Now, I do want to say that uh, if you were trained like I was trained, you're not allowed to make a clinical diagnosis. I mean, it looks like gout, it sounds like gout, um, it, it, everything about it is gout, but real men or real women who are internal medicine physicians have to stick a needle in the joint between your big toe and your foot and aspirate some fluid out of there and send it off to the lab to see if there are crystals in it. And I have done that before. <laughs> grown, grown men cry. Anyway. Why would I tell you a long story like that and use up three minutes of my sermon time for, for gout? Um, because I bet most of you didn't give a lot of thought to your big toe up until this point, right? It's just not something most of us are thinking about a lot. But if you have gout, your big toe is going to get sympathy and honor. Lots of it. I can just tell you that. And you can ask these guys about that. And so that's what we, we want to say under this last point, is that we really want to honor one another. I was watching a tribute to Tim Keller, and Melissa Kruger, the uh, author, was in a meeting one time. A bunch of people were there. And uh, Tim Keller went and pursued Melissa Kruger to the side and said, you know what, I've read some of your stuff, and it's great, and I hope you'll keep on writing. And it was like fuel for her soul. He was just able to honor and affirm her gifts in a way that sent her down the road. And that's what we want to do for one another. Uh, in the management books, they say catch somebody doing something right and, and praise them for it. 
Yeah, and we want to do that with one another. Hey, I see that you're using your gift here. Let me affirm you. This is a, this is a great contribution to the body. So 1 Corinthians 12 is really about unity given to us by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of being Christ in our space and time where we live. It comes with a diversity of gifts and all those gifts are to be equally honored and treated with sympathy. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you uh, now and we hold this up to you and I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit that Lexington Presbyterian Church could be um, your body with all of its beauty. Uh, We bring ourselves to to you and and pray that you would make us beautiful in your sight, uh, a body that uh, bears your message and your presence to a watching world and to one another, and that we would uh, see the multiplicity of gifts that you've given by the Holy Spirit uh, at work and empowered in our body. Lord, would you do that for us? Uh, Would you fill us with your spirit? And Lord, we long uh, that you would add to our number daily those who are being saved. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.